Hey everybody, the September 2021 Roundup is brought to you by Fun Again Games. And I gotta say, folks, September was huge. 20 games we're gonna be talking about today. That is a lot of games for one month. I did 15, Shay did 4, Ryan did 1. And for my 15, there were no expansions, so it's 15 completely new titles. Oh my gosh, I don't know how I made it through. Although, honestly, September's just the calm before the storm, because October is Essen month, and November is post-Essen month. So, lots of cool stuff is going to be coming in the weeks ahead. But this show is not about looking forward, it's about looking backwards. So, let me bring Shay up so he can run down from his least favorite to his most favorite, the four games games he covered for the channel this month. Shay, Shay, take it away. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey folks, so I covered four games this month, and as usual, I really enjoyed my time with all of them, but of course I must rank them in order. So uh, at uh, number four, I have Terraternity. This is a paid preview, and this is a game that is a, uh, it's all about carbon neutralizing the planet. It's You are controlling certain countries and building energy efficient um, or, or uh, green you know, power plants, things like solar farms, wind farms, hydroelectric uh, power plants, and all in the service of carbon neutralizing, uh, you know, the uh, electricity output of the countries involved. Now, this is a theme that I really like. I am very passionate about uh, climate change being a big deal that people need to know about. So a game that is all about that, I'm interested in. And it was a really cool little light to midweight Euro, but the interesting thing, the fun little twist about it, is that when you are ever producing CO2, which happens all the time in this game, you're stacking these little black cubes on top of this little platform uh, representing the globe. And if those cubes ever fall down, then you have a disaster. If you have enough disasters, everyone loses. So it's a fun little, uh, what do you call it, dexterity game that adds on to a, a Euro, which I don't usually see that often. And I also really like that even though you can play this game competitively, I, I usually play it cooperatively, but even if you are playing competitively, if there are enough disasters, everyone loses. So it really hammers home the idea that we are all in this together and we all need to work together in order to uh, succeed, even if some will benefit a little bit more than others uh, because we can all be ruined by it. Uh, now, I, I like this game. I do think it might be a little bit more useful as a teaching tool uh, than just a, a game that everyone's going to pull out of the shelf every you know all that often. But I'm really glad it's, uh, it's being put out there. I really hope it does well, and I really hope people check it out because I think it is definitely worth your while. So that was my number four. Uh, my number three is a very big game uh, from Awaken, no, not Awaken Realms, a uh, very big game from Mind Clash Games, uh, which is Voidfall. And this was uh, this is probably the biggest game on, on the list. Um, now, it's not at the top, I know, that might be a surprise because I am really into space 4X games, but I like my 4X games a little bit more on the American version side than the Euro side. Um, that's just my personal preference. Um, but no nonetheless, Voidfall is a spectacle because it is a big, complex game. You've got tons of different actions that you can do every turn. There's all kinds of combat. There's all kinds of technologies that you can do. There's so much here. And it is really cool. I just 
The only reason this is lower on my list is for combat, I like a little bit more exciting, a little more dice rolling, a little more risk involved. There's no real risk in combat in Voidfall. You know uh, the outcome when you do it. And that's totally fine. I think that's going to be some people's preference. But for me, I just like things to be a little more thrilling in that sense. But otherwise, Voidfall is solid. It's got wonderful artwork. I think Eno Tool did the artwork for it. It's looking really cool. And on top of that, um, there is a not just a competitive side, there is a co-op side. Got a lot of competitive co-op games this month. But unfortunately, with the prototype that I got, I wasn't able to try it. If I had, I, this might be higher on the list because it seems really cool. I got to read the rules. I think it's going to be really interesting. It's definitely not something that people are doing in, in 4X games. So uh, I really hope that it works out well. Uh, I think it will. And I think, people, I think it's going to do just fine on Kickstarter. So... That was my number three. Uh, my number two is Machikoro 2. And this is uh, obviously the sequel to Machikoro, sort of the original dice harvesting city builder kind of game where you are building up your city by buying these cards that all represent uh, little shops and buildings and cafes and stuff like that. And you are trying to be the first to build landmarks. Now, in the original Machikor, you had four basic landmarks that were the same for every player. And you just had to build them. You could build them in whatever order you want, but you had to build all four of them to win the game. In this one, the landmarks are different. There's just, they're part of the marketplace. They're shifting throughout the game as people buy them, uh, which I think really shakes it up. The complaint I had with the original Machikoro is every game kind of felt the same to me. This one, I think there's a lot more variety. Um, there are a few other things. The, the start is a little bit different. You don't always start with the same stuff. And you can start rolling two dice at the, uh, from the beginning of the game, whereas original Machikoro, you had to unlock that ability. So it, it's a lot of subtle changes. It definitely still feels like the same game, and I definitely like it. I personally would probably go towards Space Base a little bit more. Those two games are fairly similar. And that one's my preference, but I totally get why some people are really going to be more interested in Machikoro 2. I think that's totally valid. I would gladly play either one of them. Uh, so that was my number two, Machikoro 2. And my number one, another paid preview. This one I really hope people check out because it's so worth it and so interesting. This is Tindaya. And a lot of games, uh, there's been a lot of talk recently about colonialism as a theme in games and whether that you know should uh, continue. I think that uh, that conversation is absolutely worth having. And a lot of games are trying to avoid colonialist themes by changing the setting. And I think that's fine. You know, make it non-historical and make it sci-fi or fantasy, whatever. I think that's uh, definitely a good way to be a lot more sensitive towards the real people that have been affected by this. But another way to do it, and perhaps a, a better way to do it, is to fight the theme itself. So that's what Tendaya does. It is a very anti-colonialist game where you are playing as the uh, native tribes of the Canary Islands during the Spanish invasion. But there's also sort of a, a mystical element because you've got these wrathful gods that you need to appease that are controlling the volcanoes and the tidal waves that will sh reshape the board in front of you. You've got this archipelago of islands and the tiles that are down will be different by the end of the game. On top of that, you've got you know a bunch of resource management kind of stuff, but it's presented completely differently than most resource management type games because this isn't a land brush. You're not just trying to pick up all of the resource tiles from every island. No, you need to live in harmony with the world. If you pick up too many of those tiles, you're gonna get penalized. If you deplete an island of its resources, you're gonna get penalized. If you kill or you know just take all of the animals out of the wilderness, you're gonna get penalized. You need to live in harmony. You need to not produce too much food. 
If you overproduce food, some of it's gonna go to waste and the gods don't like that. Or if you let your people die because they didn't get enough food, the gods aren't gonna like that. So you need to uh, live on these balancing, these like kind of on a razor's edge sometimes. And it's hard. Uh, this is a competitive or a cooperative game, but regardless, you need to keep the gods happy, you need to fight off the invaders, and you need to make sure you don't lose all your people. Because if any of those, ha th those things happen, everyone loses. Uh, so even if you're playing competitive, yeah, you're trying to get the most points, and there's like different uh, objectives, and there's some really cool uh, mechanics that aren't even tied to the theme. They're just interesting uh, to do with like the secret objectives and your, your action selection stuff. But on top of that, uh, like even though you're competing, you are constantly working together. It's you know kind of bookending my my list with uh, some games that really force you to realize that you know we're all in this together, and uh, that is something that I really appreciate. Now that that video is uh, not going to be up for a little while. That game is not coming to Kickstarter for a couple months, I think. So, so quite a bit of lead time on this, uh, but uh, it, it was done early because I think we need to get the prototype to the next reviewer. Um, so. I, I'm talking about it now because I want to build excitement for it for when it does come out. This is something that I, I really want everyone to be looking into. It's a great game. It's got a great theme, and it looks fantastic. So that was my number one of this month, Tendaya. Um, and thank you all so, so much for watching my list. I will hand it back to Rado. Okay, thank you very much, Shay. Uh, as you said, Tendaya is a few months off. And actually, Terraternity, I think, goes live on Kickstarter Sometime next week, if I recall correctly, early October. So you'll be seeing those videos soon. Although, folks, if you are a backer of Rotto Runs Through on Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash Rotto, you get to see these videos early. Sometimes days, sometimes weeks. In the case of Tendaya, you can see these videos months ahead of time before everybody else and without ads. One of the many perks on the Patreon show. And therein ends this month's um, self-promotional loop. All right, let's get back to talking about games uh, or four very, very cool titles that Shay covered. But in addition to that, Ryan covered a very cool game as well called Drop Drive, uh, which is also uh, coming to Kickstarter. Has this one launched yet? I don't think it has yet. I think it's about to launch. Yeah. Um, and it's awesome. I actually, uh, in previous years, covered the prequel to this game, which was called Dungeon Drop, where the notion was you took a whole bunch of colorful cubes and meeples and stuff, held them a few feet over the table and dropped them, and that created a dungeon that you then had to explore and try to loot over the course of the game. And that was a really neat title. This sequel, uh, Drop Drive, instead of making a dungeon, we're actually making a galaxy full of planets and spaceships and anomalies and all kinds kinds of stuff. And instead of just doing simple looting, you actually have a ship that is traveling around in the in this little randomly generated solar system. The game comes with this very cool plastic tool that you can use to keep track of how far you can move. And it's very analog. You can kind of like bank around corners and whatnot. And uh, it, the game's got a lot going on. Pick up and deliver, player versus player uh, combat, if you're interested in that, or player versus environment combat as well. There's a lot going on in the game, and uh, Ryan's run-through, I think, or his rules run-through, I think, does a phenomenal job bringing it all to life. So you'll be seeing that one coming very soon as well. But that's it for the contributors. Uh, it's going to be me and the 15 games that my wife Jen and I played this month. And again, this is in countdown form, starting with our least favorite, ending with our most favorite. So let's get right to it. 
we've got 11, which was another paid Kickstarter preview like Ryan's video and a couple of Shay's videos. Uh, this game blew up, not on Kickstarter, sorry, on GameFound, which is the new competing platform. Uh, nowadays, if you're really interested in all the cool latest crowdfunded games, you've got two sites you have to be checking. And I was really happy to spend a lot of time with 11. Uh, this is a football management simulation where it's less about the actual match at the end of the week where your soccer or football team goes up against uh, you know other teams as you try to work your way up the rankings and all that. The majority of your focus in this game is management. Hiring people, um, you know, making sure their salaries are met, meeting the needs of your players, even trading players or training them. And uh, it's really cool. There's lots of different business simulation stuff you get to do. And considering this is from Portal Games, it's no surprise I was going to like it because I still think Pret-a-Porte, which was a Portal Games business simulation about the fashion industry, is one of the best business simulations the board game industry has ever seen. And I think Eleven has the potential to hit that high watermark as well. Now, it comes in at number 15 at the bottom of my list because the prototype I played is a little on the early side. And I talked about this, that the version we played, I think it definitely needs some more tuning and balancing. All of the uh, AI teams that we play against were way too easy to beat. And there were, I mean, I think the, the game needed a little bit of tightening here and there. And again, I talked about that in the final thoughts. But as I said in my final thoughts, I think the basics of this game are so rock solid. I can see how it is full to the brim of really interesting stuff. And actually, as it went through the crowdfunding process, which is now over, uh, they added a bunch more stuff like being able to control goalies and player uh, trades, I guess. There's a lot of additional stuff that's coming. So I feel like I played it a little too early to give it a proper ranking. So that's why it's coming in. Um, but again, I... 100% trust Portal and their ability to polish this um, to perfection. And I mean, it's I, I have to stress, folks, my wife and I both kind of despise um, organized sports. It's just the last thing in the world that we're even remotely interested in. And yet, what we did play of the business simulation of this game was so compelling. Even though it was a little rough and a little early, it drew us both in. And I look forward to getting to play the final version um, once all the you know the kinks have been ironed out. So that comes in number fifteen, a paid preview for eleven, the football manager game. Then we've got number fourteen, the Hobbit. An Unexpected Party, which is a really sweet, charming, little gateway family weight game, all about the dwarves showing up at the door of Bilbo Baggins and running ramsack throughout the house, you know, bending the forks, breaking the plates, because that's what Bilbo Baggins hates. Uh, so carefully, carefully with the plates. And it's a clever game that is all about players controlling the dwarves, trying to actually recreate lines from the famous song, from the famous work. And it does a wonderful job. And it comes in at number 14 because, as I said, it is a very lightweight, family-friendly gateway game. Every player has cards in hands that they can either play to do some kind of cool special power, or they can play to actually sing one of the uh, lines from the song, and that's how you score points. But the interesting thing is, you're trashing Bilbo's place every step of the way. It's kind of like a worker placement game where you move your dwarf that you're controlling at a given moment from room to room, either busting out in song, or collecting stuff you need, or using the special powers of your cards, or staying one step ahead of Bilbo, because he will be following you around trying to clean up. But you kind of need the place to be a mess so that you can collect all 
all the stuff you need to complete your objectives. And then Gandalf shows up too, and he's moving around, and he you actually kind of want to follow Gandalf around because he can give you bonuses as well. The presentation is super duper charming. The gameplay is solid. Nice little kind of an introduction to multi-use cards, which is one of my favorite mechanisms of all time. My biggest complaint about it is this game definitely wants more than two players because they pretty much did no player scaling whatsoever. So the uh, bag end is way too big when it's just me and Jen playing and we don't really run into each other very much. We don't get as many opportunities to uh, take advantage of what each other's doing. Several of the dwarves' special powers really rely on having a lot of dwarves in the house. So I could see this being a phenomenal game for families that are looking to you know recreate Tolkien's magic on their table. It's got great presentation, good solid gameplay. If you're looking for a lighter game with a higher than two player count, you might want to check out my number 14, The Hobbit and Unexpected Party. Then we move on to number 13, Drawn to Adventure, which is a roll and write. Yes, more roll and rights. I had a lot of roll and rights last uh, month. This month it won't be quite so much. This was the big one we tried. And there's a lot to recommend here. Uh, the interesting thing about this game is, rather than just having a sheet of paper like most Roll and Writes, every player gets a map slash storybook that, if I recall correctly, is six pages long. And to play through an epic campaign of rolling and riding adventure, you are going to go through three different lands. Um, you know, fighting boss monsters, leveling up your characters, looting treasure, completing quests, all kinds of stuff. Really, kind of big ticket adventure items, but all shrunk down into a fast-playing little roll-and-write. Because every round you roll the dice, these are multi-use dice. Every die you draft from the pool either lets you move from one location to another on the grid map, or the, the hex map, or it gives you the resources you need to complete quests to be able to expand your um, explorable area of the map. And so, everybody's racing to grab the right resources so they can complete quests, so they can fight bosses, so they can earn experience, so they can level up, so they can get get special powers so they can get stronger because they'll need to be stronger because when they go to the next map, they're going to be facing even tougher challenges. And it all works very nicely. The core draft, we roll a bunch of dice. It's a snake draft where the first player takes one, then the second player takes one, then the third player takes one, and then the third one player takes another one, and then the second player and the first player. It works. Um, and... There's, again, a lot to recommend. The art, the presentation is great. The text is a little on the small side. For my old 52-year-old eyes, I did struggle a little bit with that, quite frankly. I wouldn't mind if these books were a little bit bigger. But, interestingly, I think the main thing that I've seen other reviewers complain about with Drawn to Adventure is it's too long. Because to finish the big epic story, you play through three different maps. And that can take... Up to an hour and a half, because each map can take t up to 20 or 30 minutes. Now, here's the thing. If you ever do pick up Drawn to Adventure, I cannot stress enough, folks, and they really should have stressed this in the rule books. do not play the entire multi-chapter adventure in one sitting. This should be played like a quick little 20-minute roll-and-write. We make our characters, we adventure through the first map, we save our progress. That's the beautiful thing about a roll-and-write. You can actually save your progress and just close the book. And then the next time you get it back out, you can open it up and you can see, right, this is how much gold I still have. This is how many uh, potions I've got. These are the uh, things I've leveled up. And then you can move on to the next one. I actually tried this and you were a we were able to save our progress, come back a few days later, and then play through our second chapter. And then a few days later, play through our third 
third chapter, and that was wonderful. I really liked that a lot. My biggest problem with the game is the roll and write stuff itself is very light, very straightforward. The draft, um, it is nice to have multiple use cards or dice. It is nice you can bank the dice and save them for later. So you can have really big turns. But you know, I wanted to see something a little bit more gone shown cleverish, a lot more explosions of really interesting combo type stuff. Because I'll be honest, that's kind of what I've come to expect from a top tier uh, roll and write game. Drawn to Adventure is kind of like an introduction to roll and writes with this extra because the because the gameplay is really kind of simple and straightforward. With this extra quirk of you get to play an adventure over multiple sessions. And honestly, if you see anybody complaining how the game is too long, just understand. They don't get it. You play it over multiple sessions, and that's what makes the game special. And so I, there's a lot I really liked, and I would have liked to see a little bit more, just a slightly heavier. It's just a little bit too lightweight for us. Again, kind of more of a gateway introduction to Roll and Write. And that was my number 13 of the month, Drawn to Adventure. Okay, then we move on to number 12, Mandala Stones, which, oh my goodness, my wife loved this game. This was actually her number one game of the month. Uh, because I mentioned earlier, hey, if you follow on Patreon, one of the backer levels is getting to watch my wife do the same process, doing a monthly roundup where she ranks all the games we played from her perspective. And so, spoiler alert, uh, for this month's ranked this her number one. And I understand why. It's a very sharp, puzzly, abstract game in the same kind of vein of, as Azul. Beautiful presentation, wonderful um, ceramic or Bakelite uh, you know, pieces that have nice heft and weight to them, and really interesting, crunchy, puzzly gameplay. This game actually has two different puzzles going on at the same time. Uh, on your turn, first of all, you're going to move an artist around amongst all these different... Uh, I, I can't even explain. There, there, there's no theme there. The, supposedly there's a theme of we're artists, we're collecting goods to make works and all that, but really, you move a piece to a various spot on the grid to collect uh, a number of these, again, wonderful little mandala stone tiles. When you collect them, you end up creating a stack and that determines the order you have availability of them. Because you take that stack of tiles and put them on your own board in one of, what was it, one, two, three, four, five different um, silos. And the different silos score in different ways. So you're trying to make the correct stack, put it on the correct silo, so that you'll be able to score it to maximum efficiency as the game goes on. And so, really, you've got these two radically different puzzles. Um, and how they both kind of synergize together creates some very fun, crunchy, and very satisfying gameplay. Like I said, my wife adored it to bits. I think it's brilliant. I think it's not quite up... It doesn't quite reach the same heights of Azul, but it's in that territory. The gameplay is that good. My only problem, the reason it comes in number 12, is because it is an abstract game. It's even more abstract than Azul, if you can imagine such a thing. And... That's just a personal peccadillo of mine. I need a little bit more theme to invest myself. Yes, I know supposedly I'm controlling artists and making masterworks, but the theme, it's its completely absent. And I'm a guy who's always finding ways to make the theme fit. So, that is my only complaint about... And, and it should, can't even complain. Mandala Stones doesn't set out to be a big thematic Euro. It is a fun, brilliantly designed beautifully produced, crunchy little abstract game. It was my wife's favorite game of the month, and I respect it, even if I can't love it quite as much as her because of the abstract nature. That was uh, my number 12, which, by the way, um, 
by another benefit of being a Patreon backer, you, every month, Jen and I film a couple of games that only the Patreon backers get to see. And Mandala Stones was one of them. If you want to watch me and Jen puzzle our way through it. But that was number 12. Mandala Stones. Okay. Let's move on, folks, to number 11. Now, The Adventure of D, second edition. And I covered Adventure of D many, many years ago. Uh, the first edition, which I thought was an absolutely brilliant little big adventure game in a tiny little deck of cards. And it continues to be that. The biggest change with the uh, Adventure of D second edition from the original version, if you go watch my original run through, is the fact that... Um, the art has gotten a big overhaul. I'm not saying it's, you know, like competing with uh, Vincent Dutre in terms of, you know, presentation, but the art is now solid. It is well presented, and uh, it's good enough to where the art no longer holds the game back. So, that's great, which means you can really just focus on the gameplay, because it is a very, very sharp game, all about multi-use cards, which is absolutely brilliant. The deck of cards you have in your hand, those are the means you use to travel the world, but those are also the evil shadows that might attack you while you travel the world. There are also the resources you need to be able to overcome challenges and fights all over the place, and there are also potential items that you might uh, be able to loot, and there are also the challenges themselves. Each one of these cards, this is why you can have a huge game in a tiny little deck of cards. Each one of these cards has five different functions, potentially. And I was amazed when I covered this all those years ago. I continue to be amazed by it now. Um, one big change is that this new version has finally introduced cooperative rules. The original was solo or competitive only. And I think the co-op works very nicely. I do think, though, that this game is still at its best played as a solo game, which is how I demonstrated it in a run-through, because it's so fast and so snappy. And when you play um, a multiplayer, whether it is you know competitive or cooperative, they both work, I just find myself wishing, oh man, I wish the game was going at full speed like when I'm playing solo. I, one of the big changes from a gameplay point of view is we now have a maximum hand size of 6 instead of 8, which does have uh, the potential to shorten player turns. So there's not so much downtime when it's not your turn. But even still, when Jen and I played it cooperatively and the game took almost an hour, I still felt like, you know, when I played this solo, which I played several times, it just takes me like 20-25 minutes. I wish it felt that way. I wish it took 20-25 minutes played under any circumstances. Because that's the sweet spot for this game. Which is why it comes in a little bit lower. As a solo game, mwah, chef's kiss. A brilliant design. Really smart way to bring such a big adventure to a small footprint. And it's fun at the high, uh, uh, when played with Jen. But just I, I just wanted to have that incredible quickness. So I uh, just got dropped down a few steps. But as a solo game, oh, wonderful. Oh, baby. That was my number 11, Adventure of D, the second edition. Okay. Then let's move on to number 10, Keep the Heroes Out. Now, this was another paid Kickstarter preview. And oh my gosh, folks, this game is brilliant. Do not be fooled by my ranking. I have given it a 10 because I was playing a prototype. And I had one complaint, I'll mention that in a second, but I've already heard from the designer that that complaint, that was something that they were already addressing. It was that to increase the difficulty level of this wonderful, beautiful, charming, cooperative game where players are monsters trying to save their dungeon from rampaging heroes, you got to keep the heroes out, 
To increase the difficulty to a level that Jen and I were challenged by, you had to increase the length of the game. And I found that very frustrating. And I was like, no, I, I want the faster, more immediate game. I want the game that takes about an hour, but that really pushes me and challenges me. And so I was so happy when I talked to the developer after I did my run-through, and he said, oh, yeah, yeah, we're actually making a kind of like an express mode so you can play that at higher difficulty levels. Now, I haven't played with those rules. So right now, I'm ranking it as number 10 because, officially, the version I played to play it at a really good, high-quality, challenging, you know, nail-biting experience, the game overstays its welcome a little bit. And if you play at the lower difficulty levels, where which are really designed for total novices, I mean, or the game is just a bit too easy for us, the game was at the proper length. When all that stuff works out, um, you know, when the final version comes out, because it's still on Kickstarter right now, oh man, I expect... This could be a candidate for like one of the best of the year. This would certainly be. If, I mean, I if from what I expect when they make some tweaks, which I, I could totally imagine what the tweaks are. I'm pretty confident that they would work. I think this game probably would have made it in my top three of the month instead of coming in currently at my number ten. Oh my gosh, look! It is so adorable and it's so smart. Go watch my run through, or my, I should say my my paid preview to see more of my number ten. Keep the heroes out. Okay, then we move on to number nine, Murano Light Masters. Now, this is the other very abstract game that we uh, played this month. And uh, like, the, you know, like the ones that came before, it's very sharp, a very satisfying game to play. And um, my, the reason it comes in relatively low for me, I'll just say it right now, is because it is still fairly abstract. Although, the theme is certainly stronger here than it was in Mandala Stones. Because in this game, we are master glass artisans in the Italian city of Murano. Every round, on our turn, we get to harvest some glass pieces. And these are real glass, by the way. This game doesn't come with plastic pieces representing the glass. You're, they're real glass, and they look and feel wonderful. So we're trying to harvest different glass shards to be able to make various um, art pieces... Uh, from our hand of cards, because we have these contracts. People want us to make beautiful glass works. And the, there's a few interesting things that are going on. One is, I've got my hand of works. Once I've finished them all, that triggers the end of the game, and hopefully I scored the most points. But I must do them in order. I can't just do these in the order I want. The, the order they are in my hand is the order I will work on these jobs. So I can plan right from the get-go. Okay, early on, I'm going to need some yellow shards and some green shards, but then it's going to come a point where I don't need them at all anymore, and I really have to kind of switch to blue or something like that. So, that's very satisfying, being able to make plans right from the get-go of how you're going to have the game um, evolve. And um, once you actually do make these works of art, and you put them on the table so you can score them, you're not done with them yet, because each one of them comes with a one or two icons that indicates that you can um, use them, kind of like favors from your patrons, who were so happy with the art, to use special powers. Every time you play the game, four special powers are going to be put on the table that really change the play of the game. So once I've completed this work of art that has the red icon, I could then use that one time to use the red icon power and really change things up, and every time you play, it's going to be a different collection of those special powers. But that's all, the everything to do for the last half of your turn, once you've gotten all the glass and you've been able to make these new pieces and use the special powers, the game really sings in the middle of your turn, because after you harvest a couple pieces of glass, you are required, you must 
engage and trade with the market. And there's a few different ways you can do it. One of the the main way you'll do it is to sacrifice one of the pieces of art you ha- glass shards you have in your workshop to be able to dr- pull more of them out of the constantly updating markets that are on the main board, which is the uh, game box, by the way. I love it when game boxes get brought into the game. Um, but you can also sell the shards to make money. You can, um, instead of trading, you can just buy shards. But each one of these three actions works very differently and really uniquely. This game is very non-standard. You might think, I mean, I mean, that may sound like, well, okay, I've seen games like this. You, you, you collect stuff, you convert it into points through recipes. But it's that middle step where you've gotten stuff, but then you have to engage and trade with them. The way selling them works, the way buying them works, and the way trading them all works radically differently. And it all has to do with the brilliant board that is alive. Because there are two different rings. One that indicates, uh, that rotates every turn, telling you what you're going to be able to harvest at the beginning of the turn. And the other one that tells you what's actually available in the market. And you can be spending money, i.e. points, to manipulate these things. You can also manipulate your hand, by the way, too. Anyway, long story short, it's a beautiful game, and it's got surprising hidden depth to it. Really great short-term strategy based on what's the market like right now, but also my long-term strategy of, I know I have to get the glass in this order, and wonderful production. The glass pieces are great, the art is stunning, and a lot of variety too, because every time you play, you're going to get four different um, special powers. And uh, yeah, my only complaint is, the only reason it doesn't come in higher is because, again, it is still on the abstracted side. But I really enjoyed it a lot. Um, And so, it comes in at number nine. And you'll be seeing the run-through for it, I think, again, next week. You'll be seeing that very, very soon. My number nine, Murano Lightmasters. Okay, then we go on to number eight, Bird Watcher, which is another paid uh, Kickstarter preview. Uh, it'll be launching in October as well, and so you'll be able to watch me watch these birds very quickly. There are actually several games on the market that are all about manipulating bird cards. And, you know, the big bird in the nest that you have to talk about whenever you talk about a new game of this theme is Wingspan. Everybody wants to know, how does this compare to Wingspan? I'll actually talk about this in the preview that you'll be seeing very soon. But I think the thing that makes Bird Watchers stand out from all the other games, because there's a bunch of them, and, um, uh, you know, well, I mean, first of all, there's just the setting. You know, the fact that what we're doing in this game is not trying to collect the birds, not trying to put them in a sanctuary, but we are uh, photographers trying to photograph them in their natural environments, which create... The whole game is a set collection element, and there's a lot of really interesting brinksmanship um, because uh, you've, you've got... You know, there are birds in the jungle, there are birds in the clearing, trying to figure out where to grab the birds from so you can attract them to your tree, so you can take the ideal pictures and try to do the proper set collection to score lots of points is very engaging. It's a really solid set collection game. But what really sets us apart from all of its competitors is, I actually feel like I'm in the world. This is not a game where I am abstracted out to be just some kind of force of nature that manipulates the birds and says, oh, well, I'm going to have some birds appear over here, and this is where they'll live now, and now they'll be over there. I mean, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I love Wingspan. But who the heck am I in Wingspan? How do I have this magical power over these birds to make them just go and where I want them to go and stay there? In this game, the birds feel like they have agency. The birds, they're off in the jungle. They're not going to pose for me. If I want the birds to come to my tree, I one of my actions is I can do a bird call. And I can call them. And there's a really uh, clever way that you can try to maximize the efficiency of bird calls. But if I don't want to wait for the birds to, to 
come to my tree. I can literally just flush them out. I can run into the jungle. That will startle them, so they all go over to the clearing, which makes new ones appear in the jungle. Um, you know, and there might be a case where, oh, a bird I really wanted to get in my tree so I could take a picture ends up in your tree. You might even have done that on purpose because you knew how much I wanted to take a picture for my set collection. Hey, you know what? If it's in your tree, I'll use my telephoto lens and take a picture from a distance. Everything about this game is so thematic. It is so grounded. You feel like you are in the clearing and in the jungle and, you know, trying to snap those perfect shots of the birds who are very flighty. Every time you take a picture, that startles other birds and they fly away. And you're like, ah, oh, you're over at the clearing. And now that you're over in the clearing, somebody else could grab them um, because they flew away because I, but I had to make those tough choices. Which birds am I going to say goodbye to so I can get those pictures, so I can do all the different set collection? Every, um, bird type has different ways of scoring. There are lots of special powers. Every time you play, there's always a big deck of academy, you know, um, research papers that you can write, which are basically different ways to score. And it, on top of all the everything else, it's gorgeous. Oh my gosh, this game looks so great. The art is actually done by a complete new person to uh, the board game industry who is, I, if I recall correctly, a professor of bird studies and, you know, a, a professional bird artist. So, you know, the uh, the pedigree on display is great. The gameplay is great. The presentation is great. And what I love more than anything else about Word Watcher is the thematic element is great. I feel like I'm in the world with the birds. And quite frankly, playing this game makes me want to go see these birds in real life. It, the whole game is about birds of paradise. And oh my gosh, they're amazing. Gorgeous looking things. Uh, that is my number eight of the month. And again, you'll see the preview video coming soon. It we'll launches on Kickstarter in October. Bird Watcher. Okay, let's move on to number seven now. The Adventures of Robin Hood, which is a game I have been waiting for since, uh, you know, 2020 when I first heard about it. This was actually in my top 10 most anticipated games for 2021, and we finally got to play it, and oh my gosh, did we play it. We played it from start to finish. We uh, blitzed over this course of a week through the main storyline, and um, while I could go back and play through the alternate storyline, it has two full storylines in, um, I, uh, I, I, I had such a great time already, uh, because... Oh my gosh, this game does a lot of really cool things. Now, the interesting thing is, it is from designer-artist Michael Menzel. And many, many years ago, Michael Menzel made one of my favorite co-op games of all time and illustrated it, Legends of Andor. So that's why I was so excited. What was he going to do new and different, considering how amazing Andor was? And this game does so many cool and interesting things. The board itself, which represents Sherwood Forest and, you know... Um, was it Prince John's Castle, uh, is, is gorgeous, like any Michael Menzel board. But the board is basically an advent calendar. It is full to the brim of all of these little windows. And based on events that will happen over the course of gameplay, you get to flip those windows and reveal what's underneath them. Um, and, I mean, often what's underneath them is guards that are trying to capture you and your merry men, or Maid Marian, for that matter as well, your merry men and women. Um, but they are a cool events. Uh, they are things that literally change the state of the world. They are characters you can talk to, and um, and it makes the world feel alive. The the you know things are constantly changing. The world doesn't just sit there static waiting for you. But so that's half of what makes the game special. The other thing that's so great about the game is the way you literally move around the world to interact with all these things. Uh, each player gets these kind of little ruler meeples that indicate movement, and you can string one, two, or three of them together when you're moving to travel just a little ways or. Travel a really long ways, and um, you know, basically sprint through the forest to get to your goals. Um, and because they're independent, independent little like 
ruler meeples, you can, they're very analog. You can kind of try to bend tight around corners and move more efficiently and all that. Uh, and, and, and there's really interesting stuff too, because you you want to move as fast as you can because you're always racing against the clock and, you know, the evil machinations of the Sheriff of Nottingham and, and all the different missions that the game comes with. And like I said, remember, again, uh, each one of the missions has two alternates, so you can play them each twice uh, before you're done. But, uh, oh, what was I saying? Oh, yeah, movement. You want to move fast, but if you use all three of your rulers, then you will exhaust yourself, and that means you miss out on the chance of adding more cubes to the bag. Uh, there, th There's a bag that runs everything. You reach into the bag and pull out big tokens to indicate whose turn it is next. Kind of like an Aeon's End uh, approach to a variable turn order that works wonderfully in Aeon's End. It works wonderfully here. But also in that bag are tokens that indicate win guards and rich nobles that you could steal from, because we Rob from the rich give to the poor, they appear and disappear all the time because it's constantly changing. And every once in a while you draw in the bag to um, find out how the layout of the world is going to change. But the main thing that's in the bag are a bunch of success and failure cubes. And whenever you have to fight somebody, you get to draw three cubes and you have to draw at least one success. So the thing is, every time you don't sprint, you put another success cube in the bag so you have a better shot of surviving fights. And I think that's just great. It really does something so much more interesting than just another game where, oh, I'm going to fight. Let me just roll a six and see what happens. I feel like I, it's like you're constantly changing and evolving a, uh, a, 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 a die that um, you know changes its probability as you go on. It's kind of similar, now that I think about it, to, I didn't think about this at all, to the uh, Arkham Horror the Card Game Danger Cup, but I think it's ultimately better because this bag is constantly changing, whereas the Arkham Horror usually is a uh, uh, card game is kind of more just a... a, a attrition type thing. Here, the uh, makeup of the bag is constantly changing, good or bad, based on your decisions. And it's brilliant. It's got so many cool, fun ideas. The storytelling is lovely. It's not award-winning storytelling. It's pretty. It's a pretty straightforward retelling of a lot of the real legends of of of, of Robin Hood. You know, from real history, the the Welsh history, as it turns out, as I recall. And uh, yeah, there was a lot I really, really dug here. We had a great time playing all the way through the adventure. And you know, normally. In my line of work, I don't have time to go back to play a game over and over and over again. And I honestly felt like, okay, I played the first three missions, I made it through a wonderfully done tutorial, I've got it now, and yet we kept wanting to go back. And we made the time, because we were enjoying our time so much in Sherwood Forest playing number seven, The Adventures of Robin Hood. Okay. Let's move on to number six, Settlement. Uh, this is another um, thing I have filmed. My Patreon backers have already seen it, but the full run-through will be coming in uh, early October because I think this game is going to be available at Essence Spiel. This might be my first Essence Spiel coverage for 2021 that I'm doing, and this is a very sharp worker placement game where uh, players are trying to develop their own little settlement, their own little village full of buildings. It is an engine-building thing where uh, you have a 3x3 three three grid. You're putting buildings in the different spaces on the, on the grid, and one of the things you can do with your workers is activate a given row of that grid. So you're trying to put buildings that will combo well together and do really nice you know, engine building type stuff. But you have another grid, which is the wilderness, which you can use your workers to explore. And then um, if you spend your time doing that, uh, in, in the same way, you can make a combo chain of exploration by harvesting all the stuff out of the wilderness after you've explored it to get the resources you need to run your village engine. The problem with the wilderness is there are monsters constantly popping up out there. And so you have to spend workers to fight the monsters, to clear out the um, wilderness so that you can get the resources so that you can run your village engine. 
Or you could completely ignore the wilderness and make a village engine that's self-contained. Or you can completely ignore the village and just focus on the wilderness and um, harvest stuff because the true key to victory is getting the resources you need, either through the engine building or the harvesting or whatever it might be, to recruit heroes that will score you points. And there's always a set of them on display. They're constantly coming and going, and we're in a race to get those heroes as fast as we can. So... That's the crux of the game. What makes it special? Why is it my number six of the month uh, and an excellent, excellent title? Every time you set up the game, you're going to put out a number of artifacts. And the game comes with a bunch of them. And all the artifacts are radically different. And they're all very, very powerful within the confines of the game. Any one of these artifacts, if you were to get it, that would define your strategy for the entire game because it makes you really powerful either in harvesting or building or recruiting or whatever it might be. The thing is, though, um, during a once during a round, and the game place, takes place over six rounds, where you get to place all your workers, then you recover them all. Um, you have one artifact. When the round is over, you have to sacrifice that artifact, put it back in the queue, and get a different one. And that means in the next round, your entire strategy is going to change uh, in radical ways because these artifacts change everything. And so the whole game becomes all about timing, all about trying to make sure that, okay, i got to pass right now because if you pass before me, I know you're going to take that diamond ring because we both need it really bad, even though I've got another worker. I might pass right now to ensure that I get that diamond ring so that I can do my strategy next turn. Although on the flip side, if I didn't get the diamond ring and you ended up getting it, when we get to the next round, I want to outlast you. I want to do more work because I want you to pass before me. Because when you pass, you've got to give that up, put it back in the queue and take a different one. And so you are so heavily invested in where are the artifacts? Who's got the artifact I want? Are they going to pass before me so that I could pass right after them and snag it before somebody else gets it? Because again, these artifacts are game changing. And so it becomes, you know, I mentioned in my run through, we have kind of shared custody of all these artifacts and we're constantly juggling them back and forth. And that's where the interaction really comes alive because you so care about getting the right artifact at the right time. So you can do all of your harvesting and your engine building and your recruiting to peak efficiency. It's a very impressive little game um, from a, a relatively new publisher. that, uh, And I hope it makes a big splash to Destin Spiel because uh, we really enjoyed my number six of the month, Settlement. Okay, now let's talk about number five, Bad Company. I guess this is actually, this actually, I believe, has gone live now. So this is probably my first Essen 2021 uh, video because this is going to be available at Essen like Settlement before it. And uh, yeah, I loved it. It was great. It was a lot of fun. This is basically a dice harvesting game along the lines of Machi Koro. You know, uh, back at the beginning of this, Shay mentioned Machi Koro too. And, um, you know, I have to admit, you know, I was kind of curious about trying out Machi Koro too, but I knew Bad Company was coming and I so much more wanted to play this because. Oh my gosh, Bad Company finds a really cool and interesting way to completely reinvent the Machi Koro formula and do new cool stuff that is just so much fun. In this game, we are um, the, the head of a heist crew trying to pull off lots of heists and get out of town before the cops catch us. And... Like Machi Koro, that means every round there's going to be dice rolled, and the results of those dice tell me which of my crew members, you know, because my crew members are number 2 to 12, uh, uh, you know, which of them I'm going to activate. What's interesting about this game is you actually have four dice, and when you're rolling a dice, you roll all four, and you can combine them into two pairs. So um, if you have a 1, a 1, a 3, and a 6, you could combine them into a 2 and a 9, or a 4 and a 7, or whatever. And um, this means 
every time you roll the dice. And you can spend money to re-roll if you're desperate, if you need them to. Uh, you have very interesting decisions. Okay, which of my people who can be leveled up over time and become more powerful am I going to activate? But that's not all. Because everybody else, like Machikoro, is waiting to see what I roll. Um, but unlike, And Machikoro, like, oh... You rolled a two. That is useless to me. Yawn boring. In this game, you know, I'm going to make one die or the other. Or, you know, or I'm going to make the two pairs. And like I say I made a two and a nine, right? And so I'm activating my two and my nine. Everybody else gets to activate their two or their nine. And so everybody, on everybody's turn, has decisions to make. And they're meaningful decisions um, that are very, very engaging. And you will win or lose. I mean, this is not a game where you feel like, oh, another round where I get to do nothing. Ugh over and over again. I just can't roll that one thing I need. You're rolling four dice. You have a lot of control. And even when you're not in control, you're choosing from two different pairs that one of the players created. And um, and then on top of that, there's no bad rolls because even if you don't get to activate who you want to activate, you'll activate somebody that's giving making progress on uh, all the, the heists that you're trying to do. That's what we're trying to do. Pull off heists. And it works so well. Also, all this the entire game from start to finish is simultaneous play, and the whole game can finish, no matter the player count, in about a half an hour. So everything about this game is fantastic. I love the presentation. I love the sense of humor. I love how it takes Machi Koro and impr- improves upon it. And I mean, uh, what's it? Uh, Shay drew uh, parallels to Space Base when he was talking about Machi Koro. Probably currently the high watermark or what everybody loves as a Machi Koro alternative. Um, you know, no offense to AEG and John D. Clare. I, I love them. They're some of my favorites. But Bad Company eclipses um, uh, Splendor. Or not, uh, Space Base for me. It's a blast from start to finish. Very high velocity. Really engaging, fun gameplay. Uh, just a good sense of humor throughout. I love everything about my number five of the month, which will be coming at Essence Beal 2021. Bad Company. Okay, from Aporta Games. I, I forgot to mention. Okay, number four. Origins First Builders. Oh my gosh, folks. Um, uh, One name for you. Adam Kapinski. This is a designer to watch. And I have to admit, I've not been watching Adam because up until now, most of his games, which have been very popular, are big, sprawling, miniature-heavy, dudes-on-a-map skirmish-type stuff, which I just didn't care about. And then he goes and makes one of the coolest new Euro-style goods conversion um, points-gathering games I've played in quite a while. I love the setting. It, is, it presumes in the era of antiquities, we weren't smart enough to figure out how to make the pyramids ourselves. Um, aliens actually came down and gave us the tools and techniques we needed at a crucial time in our development uh, to take it to the next level. And so it has a really fun setting. I think. It has great presentation because literally the alien ships are on this board that if they weren't there, you would think, oh, this just looks like another ancient Civ um, Euro-style, you know, goods conversion game. But, uh, you know, so the theme really elevates it. But then on top of that, the gameplay is sharp. It's a dice worker placement game. And, um, you know, you need the die color because you care about the die color because if you can send a matching uh, color, like a yellow cube to a yellow alien ship, you'll get yellow bonuses, which are randomly scattered about, so you get a different combination of bonuses every time you play. By the way, nice real setup variability. But um, you could, if you're really desperate, you could send that yellow two over to the purple, because you really need to activate the purple alien right now. You just won't get you won't get the bonus. But you might not be able to send it to the purple, because the number of the die counts as well. The alien ship 
trips. Every time somebody visits them, they rotate. They're little spinning flying saucers, basically. And that indicates that it gets tougher and tougher and tougher. You need higher and higher value dice to visit the aliens. And so, um, you know, if you roll low, then you might have a hard time visiting some of the aliens that are requiring more knowledge. But knowledge is one of the resources you have, and you can always use that knowledge to get more. Uh, don't get me wrong, though. This is not a game where there are bad dice rolls, because there are very valuable uses for the low dice as well. Um, but it's a very sharp game. Really fun. I already did my run-through for this Gosh, back at the beginning of the month, I think. And uh, this was, in, I think this is my wife's third favorite game of the month. It's my fourth favorite game of the month. I love everything about it. So much set of variability. Every time you play, there's three different special powers that players are vying for control over. There's this whole city building, tile laying game where you're trying to match patterns and doing um, you know, really interesting puzzly stuff. But the worker placement itself is also just so infinitely compelling and i'm just blown away by it and again designer adam kapinski he's now a euro designer to watch and that's very very cool really uh my only complaint the thing that kept this out of the number one space for me is i would have liked to see a little bit more work done on the two-player scaling and in fact i talked about this in my final thoughts i'm going to take some of the rules that were implemented for the solo game which works great by the way and apply them to the two-player game as well so if, if you went with my unofficial house rule variant, this would probably be my number two of the month, I think. But even with the rules as written as a two-player game, it's my number four of the month, Origins First Builders. Alrighty, folks, we are getting close to the end. Let's talk about Witchstone, which is a very interesting game because it's from designer Reiner Knizia. But in a very, very rare move for Reiner, he did not develop this game alone. He had a co-designer, and I'm sorry, I cannot remember your name, co-designer. Okay, that's it. I'm going to pull up. should have written this down ahead of time. I'm going to bring up Chrome, and I'm going to look up Board Game Geek Witch Stone. And uh, give credit where credit is due. Reiner Kanichi is one of the greatest board game designers of all time, but his partner, Martino uh, Chiacchera, Oh man, Martino really pushed Reiner in new directions because um, this game does not look at all or really not even feel very much like a Reiner Kanichi game. It still has brilliant, simple core mechanisms that drive you through and you know just constantly force you to evaluate and reevaluate every step of the way as you're constantly making compromises. But um, you know, and if anything, I think this kind of reminds me of an older Reiner Kanichi design chin, uh, because it's a domino tile laying game where you have a bunch of domino tiles, you're putting them into your little witch's cauldron, and you're trying to make matching groups of uh, icons in your cauldron because that means you can make bigger and bigger and bigger actions. So that you can do all the these different type of witchy actions, you know, you know, make um, ley line energy connections between towns and spread your witches out, or you know, do research on scrolls, or you know, practice your magic wand and all that. So there are these fun little thematic flourishes, but. What really makes the game stand apart, and this was my wife's number two of the month. Sorry, um, I'm kind of spoiling this uh, for Patreon backers, but okay, I'll have to make sure I put up Jen's video before I put up mine since I'm spoiling her whole video. Uh, Anyway, though, um, what really makes this game special is as the game goes on and you are really careful about how you do the tile laying in your cauldron, you prompt bigger and bigger and bigger, explosively bigger turns, where you get to do uh, triple, quadruple, quintuple, sectuple, septuple, octuple, uber turns of actions, whether it is, you know, mastering the magic wand, or, um, you know, 
deploying witches on the board. And um, the bigger these turns you get access to, the more combo-tastic they get. I mean, I, I mentioned earlier talking about how I, you know, in Rolling Rights, I really like to see more kind of combo-tastic super chains of stuff that happens. Witchstone is awash in those kinds of big, cool, oh my gosh, this turn, uh, I'm going to get a lot of stuff done. I'm going to lay six lines and I'm going to move my witches four times and just between those two things, I'm probably going to trigger six or seven bonus actions I get to do off all this stuff. In fact, I mean, turns can get so complex in this game when you're really triggering huge, uber, epic turns that the game comes with a little turn tracker you can use where everybody has their own little uh, familiar like a crow or a frog or whatever that you use to keep track. Right, okay, let's not forget. I'm gonna ha- I have eight witch moves I get to do this turn. Right, okay, I'll do these first three and oh, now I've got to interrupt because that's triggered another thing and then I do it and then I come back. It's great. Um, uh, Martino and Reiner work together again. Reiner Kanitia, collaborate more with other designers. You're one of the best. You're still one of the best, baby. But oh my gosh. The, I wouldn't have thought this was a Reiner Kanitia game. And I'm really, my hat's off about to my number three of the month, Witchstone. Alrighty. Let us talk now about number two, the crew, Mission Deep Sea. Oh my goodness, the crew is rightfully hailed as one of the best, if not the best new card games to come out in the last decade. It's such a brilliant, cooperative, trick-taking game. I was absolutely blown away by it. Um, And the original crew, uh, Search for Planet X or something like that, was about deep space exploration. But at its heart, it was really a fairly abstract card game where every um, round or every, every uh, round of this trick-taking game, every player has their own special objectives that they have to fulfill to be able to win. Because it's often in this game, okay, I can win this trick. And in a regular trick-taking game, I'm trying to win as many tricks as I can. In this game, as often as not, you have to lose so you can let your teammates win because they have objectives about how they have to go about it. And it was brilliant. The crew, Mission Deep Sea, is brilliant. It is absolutely brilliant as well. I, I cannot speak highly of it enough. But what makes Mission Deep Sea better? Uh, because the core game hasn't changed. Don't get me wrong. It's still that same core idea of it's a cooperative trick-taking game where we have to be smart about whether we win or lose or how we can set up our teammates to win, even if it sometimes seems almost impossible. The core change to the game is the way missions are doled out. In the original game, there was a book of, I forget, 50 or 60 missions, and each one had a special set of rules of how players were supposed to win. In the new game, there's still a big old book of missions, but every time you set up a new mission, there are a random assortment of actual goals, task cards that are drawn and put out, and players draft them um, you know, before they get going. And then on top of that, the missions have special rule-changing stuff. And... Oh man, this makes it so much more fresh and interesting. Um, you know, so much more compelling because you could just say, "Ah, to heck with it! I'm, I'm tossing the 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 storybook out the window." Although I wouldn't. I really enjoyed the uh, Planet Nine uh, storyline, and I, from what we've played so far, I really enjoyed the Deep Sea storyline as well. But every time you play, I mean, the game comes with a really thick deck of all these cool special missions you can do. 
And um, every time you play, it's going to be an interesting combination of stuff. But it's not like they're just handed out. It's it's interesting just drafting them, deciding, because you can see what your starting hand is. And you're like, okay, I think I have my best shot at winning that one. I hope I can get it so somebody else doesn't take it ahead of me. Oh, they took that one. Okay, do I think I could lose that one? Okay, that's the one I'm going to take. It's great. It so elevates the game. It pretty much replaces the original Planet Nine. I can't imagine going back to that, quite frankly. I mean, I guess, strictly speaking, the, uh, the, the first crew does have a place because it's a bit more straightforward. And don't get me wrong, it can be hard wrapping your head around the crew. I certainly struggled when we started playing the original one. So, I mean, I guess it's still maybe a better introduction to the whole idea. But, yeah, Mission Deep Sea so elevates the experience. Um, you know, the original crew didn't quite make it into my uh, top 10 of the year. It was in my top 15. This might make it into my top 10 for this year. Because, I mean, this that one extra little twist so takes it to the next level. And, uh, uh, and the game was already on a really, really high-level play. Uh, so I'm very, very impressed by my number two of the month, the crew, Mission Deep Sea. But every month, folks, there must be a new game of the month. And what do we have this month? I genuinely don't remember. Let's take a look. Ah, oh, yes. My number one game of the month, Dungeon Decorators. Wow! Was I not prepared for how amazing this game is. It is so much fun. Now, I should say right from the get-go, please remember, I love, love, love um, uh, Tile Lang. Tile Lang is one of my favorite gameplay mechanisms. Ever since the first time I played Carcassonne, I fell so hard in love with the basic idea just because you create something. There's something real, tangible. You feel like you've accomplished things at the end of the game because of what you've actually built for yourself. Now, unlike Carcassonne, this is a game where we're each doing our own separate Tile Lang adventure, which I definitely prefer. And what we're trying to do is be dungeon architects and decorators at the same time, trying to design the perfect dungeon for our clients. Every time you play the game, you start out by drawing three random overlords who have very specific needs of what they want to see in the dungeon designs that we are going to be making as we do our Carcassonne-esque tiling. And everybody's competing to hit all three of these metrics. But on top of that, we've got a whole handful of goal cards. Uh, shape goals that tell us like the way we want to lay out our corridors of our dungeon to um, you know make... Uh, certain attractions in the dungeon that will score us points, but um, also, what are the other? Oh, decoration goals, where not only do we want to get the dungeon in a certain layout, but we want to decorate it specific ways, putting cobwebs in the right place, or skeletons, or um, you know, uh, creepy torches, or or um, knives, or or spikes, or whatever it might be. And the thing is, uh, this is a uh, King Domino esque uh, tile drafting game. Because on your turn, you can take any of the tiles that are on display, but the ones further to the right tend to be better. But that means you will go later in turn order on the next round. Straight out of King Domino. That's a great drafting system. It works great there. It works great here. But once you take that tile, it's a two-sided tile. This is a multi-use tile game. You can take that tile and put it down dungeon side up so you can expand your rooms and your hallways and your corridors and your intersections and all that. Or you can put it decoration side up so you can decorate all those rooms and hallways and intersections and all of that. And that means you are basically playing two completely separate intermeshed tile laying games at the same time. Because each tile is really two different tiles in one, and you have to lay out the dungeon to fulfill certain needs, but you have to do it in such a way that you leave open space so that you can put the decoration tiles scattered out amongst, um, you know, and that creates such an extra 
final level of challenge to what is, at first glance, looks like a pretty straightforward tile laying game. But the fact that it's two tile laying games, where the two tiles fundamentally function differently um, and have different goals, different tricks and quirks, and yet you have to make these two separate dungeons, the corridors and the decorations, fit together as you are slowly expanding your way. And what you're always trying to do is you're either you've got decoration goals or shape goals you're trying to achieve. Because as soon as you complete a goal, you get to draw more. And that's the key to this game. Yes, it's important to um, make sure the big overbosses are happy and you compete on those. But the main thing is you are trying to build as fast as you can to complete your objectives to be able to score more so you can draw more. And um, while still making that work within the confines of the big picture. It's a blast. It's It's got a great sense of humor. Really wonderful presentation. The uh, overbosses are, are cute and funny. And um, But all that aside, it is such a new, fresh, different, and unique approach to tile-laying games. A multi-use tile, tile-laying game that I, I couldn't not make it my number one game of the year. And I would definitely think it's a potential for one of my 10 best games of the year, too. Again, like I said right front, I loves me some tiling. I love it so, so very much. So, uh, you know, something that basically makes me play two tiling games at the same time, where they're both struggling for to fit together. Oh my gosh! Oh my goodness! My number one game of the month. Uh, yeah, there's no choice about it. It is Dungeon Decorators, and that's it, folks. Whew! What are we at now? Well, how much have I been talking for? Oh, just about an hour, me and Shay. Um, not too bad. 20 games in uh, just over 60 minutes. That's three minutes a game. I feel pretty good about that. But, folks, there's no rest for the weary because um, I am sure um, probably just in the time I filmed this, I mean, I'm actually expecting one game to show up this afternoon for it's going to be on Kickstarter next month. I really got to get to work on that. But, as always, folks, thanks for uh, watching the show. Uh, hope you had a good time. Hope you found some interesting stuff there. If you have any questions, yeah, you can certainly ask me in the show notes. Some of these run-throughs will be showing up in, in the coming weeks. Uh, we've just kind of filmed a bit early in the lead-up to Essen Spiel. Oh my gosh, Essen Spiel. Uh, the next R&R, &R, uh, which is a, a weekly live show I do with Rael Gaviola. We're going to be counting down our 10 most anticipated games for Essen Spiel. There's some really amazing stuff coming, folks. But anyway, again, that's the future. We are done talking about September. That is in the rearview mirror. Thanks for watching, everybody. And, of course, as always, thanks so much to Fun Again Games for supporting the show and making it possible. Have a nice day, everybody. Talk to you later. So long. Uh, bye bye